Well, my name is Clayton Walker. I'm the pastor of the City Church, which is our big church. Rayer Church is our, our college ministry. If you've never met before, uh, my name's Clayton. And in the spirit of our series, El Nombre, uh, my name means, or the etymology of my name, Clayton, means molded in the potter's hand. And I, I love that, uh, especially I was, had uh, just a new appreciation for the depth of the meaning of my name after Brandon shared last week that his name comes from like broom and hill. And I just died. Like I, I lost it when he said that his name's etymology is broom. Um, that, that was hilarious to me. And, and so uh, I, I love the, the meaning and the depth of my name. Now, people call us and will often refer to us by different names, right? I mean, you may have your nicknames, people, friends may call you one thing, family may call you another thing. Your mom probably calls you something that, that, that no one else calls you. Like my mom calls me Clay and I don't like it. I don't want anybody else to call me Clay, but my mom calls me Clay, okay? My, my, my brothers call me things like C. Murda. Now you might be wondering, why do your brothers, when you're a pastor, call you C. Murda? I don't know, but that's one of the names one of my brother calls me. Uh, they call me C. Walk because of a, a show we all watch together. They call, we call each other hermano sometimes, uh, which is Spanish for, for brother. I took three years of Spanish, and so I know that hermano means brother and nombre means name, right? I mean, that's made it all worth it. And, and so my brothers call me different names that, that no one else calls me. My kids call me dad, okay? There aren't too many people in the world that call me dad, but they know me as dad. Now, one of the things I've learned um, from my son who's now 12, and so he's a preteen, he's in sixth grade, he's in middle school, is that he feels like he's got the freedom now to call me by some other names. And I'll, let, let me tell you what I'm talking about, okay? So he comes up to me the other day and he says, hey bro, I'm like, uh, no, that's not going to work. I'm not your bro. Okay. We're not on that kind of, we're not on that level here. Okay. You're not, we're, I'm not your bro. Uh, I'm your dad. And now even recently, a couple of times he's called me something that him and his friends call each other. Like when they're talking trash or when they do something awesome in sport, you know, or whatever, they're like, take that son, you know, or whatever. So the other day he comes in and he's like, what's up son. And I'm like, no, like you didn't understand, bro didn't work. You really think son's gonna work? Like you're my son, I'm your dad. I'm not your son, I'm not your bro, I'm your dad. You can call me dad, you can call me sir, you can call me any of those things, but you're not gonna call me bro and you're not definitely, I mean, you're not gonna call me son, okay? That's just outright disrespectful. It's just not gonna, not gonna work. So, so my kids are starting to think, right? I don't know why, that they can call me other names other than dad, right? Now, my wife calls me Captain America, okay? Now, if you've been here for a while, you know this, okay? Now, she doesn't really call me Captain America, but it is my contact name in her phone. Uh, is Captain America. Now I may have changed it to that at one point, but she kept it. And so I just like to think that she still calls me and refers to me as Captain America. But, but so depending on how you know someone determines what you may call them or how you may refer to them. And the same thing is true with God. Like there's all kinds of different names for God all throughout the scripture. And getting to know these names helps us get to know God, you see, what you call someone says a lot about who they are, and it says a lot about who you believe them to be. It says a lot about your relationship to that person. And so as we get to know the names of God, and in Greek, the Greek word for name is onoma, which means literally to know. As we get to know these names of God in this series this year, and we, we did this series a, a year ago where we looked at three other names of God. As we get to know the names of God, it helps us know God better. And our prayer, our hope is in this series is we get to know God better. Man, it just blows our minds and, and our wonder and our love and increases our worship of God as we get to know God in these different ways, some of which you may have never seen before. And so let me recap, okay? Last year when we started this series, we started out with Elohim. And Elohim refers to God's pre-existence, his power to create, his plurality and essence, and his preeminence in position. We talked next about El Roy, which means the Lord sees. The Lord sees me, he sees my situation, he sees everything. There's no hiding 
from God, from El Roy. Jehovah Rohi was the last one we did last year, which means the Lord is my shepherd. Last week, Brandon did a great job talking about Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is my peace. Now, if you've missed any of these from this year or last year, you can jump on our website, go to the El Nombre series, and you can catch up and, and, and follow along with us. But here's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We are talking about El Kanah, which means the Lord is jealous. El Kanah, which means the Lord is jealous. Now, as we look at this name and as we've studied other names of God, here's what's important to remember. The reason we study names of God and we study who God is in the scripture is to get to know God as he's revealed himself. Okay? We, we don't get to come up with who God is or what he's like or, or what he wants or what his will is, what's okay and what's not okay. We, we don't determine those things. That's, that's creating a God, the Bible says, in our own image. That's idolatry. We, we got to get to know God as he's revealed himself in the scripture, as he's revealed himself, as he's told us, hey, this is who I am. And we get to know who he is by studying the scripture, studying the names of God and, and, and other things. But, but we get to know who God is as he's revealed himself in the scripture by studying these names. The Bible's clear. Our hearts are deceptive above all else they will lead us astray. And so we can't trust our feelings and our emotions about who God is and what he's like. Paul says in Romans one that we come up with foolish ideas and thoughts about who God is and what he's like. So our minds can't be trusted. God says, I, you, you make the mistake of thinking that, that I am like you, I'm not like you. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I'm not like you. So when we come up with who God is and assume who he is and what he must be like, we're actually, most of the time, we're forming a God in our own image that's like us rather than getting to know God as he's revealed himself in the scripture. And so that we aren't idolaters, we need to get to know God as he's revealed himself in scripture. And tonight we're going to see God has revealed himself as El Kanah. The Lord is jealous. Now, you may be here and you might be thinking, wait a second. How could God be jealous? God is love. And I've heard in almost every wedding I've ever been to this verse in 1 Corinthians 13 that says, love is not jealous. So how could God be jealous if love is not jealous? jealous. Well, let's look at this word in first Corinthians 13, the word for love in Greek here in first Corinthians 13 means this. It means envious. It means a rival. It means not wanting someone's best or being able to celebrate their victories. So when first Corinthians 13 is written, when Paul writes this and he says, love is not jealous. He's saying love is not a, a rivalry based kind of relationship. It's not a relationship where you're envious of the other person, or you can't celebrate their victories or want their best. A love relationship means I want your best. I can celebrate your victories, your wins. I'm not envious of you. There's no rivalry here. I want you to succeed and to flourish and to do well. That's love. It's looking out for the other person's best interest and not the interest of yourself. That's love. And so in this sense, love is not jealous. But the Bible is clear that the Lord God is jealous. So, so what's that about? What does that mean? Well, let's look at that. If you got your Bible, go to Exodus chapter 34, Deuteronomy 4, and Deuteronomy 6. That's where we're going to be. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, jump on RadioChurch.com now. Follow along. Pull up the message notes, and the verses are all there. Uh, the points are all there. You can fill in the blank. Uh, when you get a green line, it means you got the answer right. And then you just feel all good about yourself, right? If you get a red line, it means that you're wrong, and you're not very smart, and you got to figure out the right answer, all right? So follow along with this. Exodus chapter 34. Here's what's happening. All right. Moses has gone up on the mountain, Mount Sinai to meet with God, to receive God's law. And in this law, God's law, God tells Israel, his people, how they're going to have a relationship with him, how they're going to worship him and how they're going to offer sacrifices that are going to appease the wrath of God for their sin so that God doesn't wipe them out in the moment because of their sin. 
And so God gives them this law, this system, this way in which sinful man is going to be in a relationship with a holy God. How is that possible? Well, God gives them this system, the sacrificial system and the worship of God in the temple. And he gives them his law. He reveals himself to his people in the way this relationship is going to work. They didn't come up with it. God came up with it. And God said, this is the way in which you're going to relate to me because I'm holy and you're sinful. This is how this is going to work. Well, Moses is up on that mountain meeting with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel starts to get a little impatient. They start to get scared. Maybe Moses has died and they don't know what to do. And so instead of waiting, watch this, instead of waiting on God's revelation of himself that God is giving to Moses to give to them, instead of waiting on God's revelation of himself, they decide to make their own God in their own image. And so they take some gold, they melt it down, they form this golden calf, they form a created thing that they bow down to and they worship and they pray to and God gets angry. Moses comes down off the mountain. He's, he's asking the people, you know, what's up with this? God's wanting to wipe out all of Israel. Moses is like, don't do it. Don't wipe them all out. God wipes out those who had sinned against him, but there's a remnant that remains that survives the wrath of God for their sin, for their idolatry. And now God, through this prophet, servant, leader, Moses, is telling them what it's going to be like when they go into this promised land that he's promised he would give to the ancestors, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel. And God is saying, hey, this is the way it's going to be. This is how it's going to work. This is what it's going to look like. And he warns them of things to do and not do when they go into this promise so that they don't repeat this same mistake all over again of falling into idolatry, worshiping false gods that are no gods at all. And thus incurring the wrath of God for their idolatry. God says this, this can't happen again. And so when you go into the promised land, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're not going to do. So that's where we are. Exodus chapter 34. Let's pick up in verse 12. And here's what God says to Israel through their leader, Moses. He says this, be very careful never to make a treaty. God says, be careful. Don't ever make a treaty. Another word for this, another way to think about this is don't compromise. When you go into this promised land, don't compromise in any way with anything I'm telling you today. Do not compromise. Don't compromise. Don't make a treaty with the people who live in this land where you're going. If you do, watch what happens. You will end up following their evil ways and you will be trapped. Instead, you must break down their pagan altars, smash their sacred pillars and cut down their Asherah poles. See, here's what was happening. These people in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites worshiped many different gods and goddesses, but one of them was Asherah. And what they would do is go up on these high places where there are these pillars, where there are these altars, and they would worship this false goddess of Asherah. And they would do shameful sexual things in front of these altars as a worship to Asherah. And God hated it. He hated their idolatry. And God tells Israel, don't Don't go in there and make a treaty with these people and don't don't compromise in any way because if you do, you'll start following their evil ways because listen, sin always takes you further than you ever thought you were gonna go. A little bit of compromise here and then a little bit of compromise there and sin will always get that hook inside your mouth and take you further than you ever thought you were going to go. And so God says, don't make a treaty. Don't compromise in the least. Otherwise, you'll be trapped. No, instead, break down, get rid of all the idolatry and all the sinful things in this land you're going to enter and I'm going to give you. Get rid of all of it. No compromises, no idolatry. He says, you must worship no other gods for the Lord whose very name is jealous. Is a God who is what? Jealous about his relationship with you. 
God is jealous about his relationship with you. So when you go into this land, do not compromise. Do not worship idols. Do not bow down to things that are not God. Do not give yourself over to things that are not the one true and living God. Now, another account in Deuteronomy chapter four and chapter six, again, God through his servant Moses is telling Israel what it's going to be like in this promised land. And we see this name, Elkanah, repeated again in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 6. So let's check this out. Let's see what's happening here. It says, but be very careful. You did not see the Lord's form on the day he spoke to you from the heart of the fire at Mount Sinai. Now here's what uh, God is saying through through Moses. When, When Moses went up onto the mountain, all they saw was the mountain covered in this fiery smoke. And that was the Lord descending upon this mountain and meeting with Moses and giving Moses this covenant, which is now known as the old covenant. We as followers of Jesus are now under the new covenant, but this old covenant was given at this moment on top of this mountain when God descended on this mountain in this fiery cloud. And what God is reminding his people is he's saying, listen, when I descended and I met with Moses on that mountain, you you didn't see any form. You didn't see any image. You didn't see any item. There, there, there was nothing that, that Moses was bowing down to. There was no item. There was no object that Moses was praying to or talking to. And so God says, you, you didn't see the Lord's form on the day he spoke to you from the, from the heart of the fire at Mount Sinai. You, you just saw this fiery, cloudy substance envelop the, the mountain. There, there was no form. There was no object for you to bow down to. There's no icon for you to pray to, to offer sacrifices to, to, to worship every other religion on the face of the planet. We see idols and forms and objects and icons that you bow down to, that you pray to. But God says, when I met with you on that day, you you didn't see an object. There, There was no There was no form. So watch this. So don't corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether of a man or a woman, an animal on the ground, a bird in the sky, a small animal that scurries along the ground or a fish in the deepest sea. And when you look up into the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all these forces of heaven, don't be seduced into worshiping them. The Lord, your God gave them to all the people's of the earth. God is saying, don't look at the things that run along the ground or the trees or the the birds in the air or the sun, the moon and stars. Don't look at these things and bow down and worship them. They are created things. Worship the creator, not the created. And so you might be sitting here thinking, "Who, who would bow down to like and worship a bird or a tree or a deer or something or the sun? But all of these things are just created things that take the place of the worship of the one true God, the creator. And so anytime we give ourselves over, we compromise, we we worship and we give ourselves or our love, our affection over to anything other than the Lord, the one true God, we're giving ourselves our love, our affection, our worship over to a created thing that the Lord has given us, but not to be worshiped or adored in the way that the Lord is to be worshiped or adored. God says, the Lord, your God, he gave them to all the peoples of the earth. So remember that the Lord rescued you from the iron smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very own people and his special possession, which is what you are today. The Lord, your God, watch this, is a devouring fire. He is a jealous God. He is El Kanah, devouring fire, the jealous God. God says, I'm the one who rescued you from slavery to the Egyptians with my mighty hand. I'm the one who set you free. So your worship belongs to me. 
Because I'm the one who rescued you. These idols, these images, these, these forms, all these false gods, these false, they didn't rescue you from slavery to the Egypt. I rescued you from slavery to the Egyptians. So you will worship me completely and wholeheartedly because I am a devouring fire. And what does a, a fire do? It consumes everything it touches. And God says, I'm a devouring fire. I consume and will consume everything I touch. Because I'm Elkanah, I'm the jealous God. Let's keep going, Deuteronomy chapter six. God again through his servant Moses speaking to Israel. Listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your hearts, all of it. Not 50% of my heart and I'm gonna give 50% you know, to this person or this pursuit or this job or this dream. No, no, the, the Lord says all your heart. Well, God, surely you just mean like the majority of my heart, right? No, 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 all your heart. But maybe just like an overwhelming majority. What about like 80 or 90% of my, no. No, I'm a devouring fire, a jealous God. I want all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly with an undivided heart. That's what that means. Wholeheartedly, undivided, a singular pursuit and passion with a whole heart to these commands that I'm giving you today. Verse 10, the Lord, your God will soon bring you into the land. He swore to give you when he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land with large prosperous cities that you did not build. The houses will be richly stocked with goods. You did not produce. You will draw water from cisterns. You did not dig and you will eat from vineyards and olive trees. You did not plant when you have eaten your fill in this land. Be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. When you take an oath, you must use only his name. You must not worship any of the gods of the neighboring nations for the Lord your God who lives among you is a jealous God. I am El Kanah. And his anger will flare up against you and he will wipe you from the face of the earth, just like he did that day at Mount Sinai, when instead of waiting on the revelation of God and how to be in relationship with this God, you took matters into your own hands because of your impatience and because of your fear and decided to do things your own way and form your own God and your own image. And when you do that, my anger for your sin and idolatry will flare up and I will wipe you out. God is jealous for his relationship with you. He is a devouring fire. And so the question becomes, what all, what is, what is he je jealous for? Like God, what all are you jealous for? And so let's break this down and let's talk about this. What are some of the things that God is jealous for? Jealous for what? Number one, jealous for your heart. Then you see that in these verses? God says, I want all your heart. I want wholehearted, committed devotion to me and to my commands. I want your heart. God said through the prophet Ezekiel that in this new covenant, God says, I'm going to take your heart of stone out. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that's sensitive to me, that loves me, that worships me, that prays, that loves my word, that serves, that gives. I'm going to give you a new heart with new affections and desires. I'm going to change your heart. Jesus would regularly tell the Pharisees, these religious types, he would tell them, you're like a whitewashed tomb. And here's what he meant by that. Here's what he was saying. On the outside, everything looks great. It's whitewashed. Everything looks great on the outside. You're, you're going through all the religious routine, 
but you're dead on the inside. Your heart, Jesus would say, is far from me. Everything maybe looks good on the outside, but your heart is far from me. And here's what Jesus was saying. You can go through all the religious routine you want. That's not going to change your heart. I'm after your heart. You can be as religious as they come, but your heart be far from God. And Jesus says, I want your heart. I want all your heart. Next, God's jealous for your mind, for your thoughts. Paul tells us that we're to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we're to fix our eyes on things that are unseen, the eternal things of God, rather than the things that are seen, these temporary things that we see day in and day out. Paul says, fix your eyes on what's unseen. Think about what's unseen, these eternal heavenly things. Think about those things. Paul writes in Philippians, Brandon read this to us last week about thinking about things that are lovely and pure and holy and noble. Think about these things. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't think like this world thinks. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God wants your mind. He wants your thoughts. Take every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ. Next, God's jealous for your life, your very life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that he died for us so that those of us who live would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. So the Christian says, I'm dead to my old life. I've got a new life in Christ. I'm living for Jesus now. That's what my life's all about. Living for him who died and rose again, not for myself. Jesus said, you want to follow me? You got to take up your cross, die to yourself and follow me. And Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find true life. But whoever seeks to hold on to this life, to hold on to their life and not give their life over to me, will forfeit their entire life. God is jealous for your life. Paul wrote in Romans 12 that our act of worship to God is to lay ourselves down as a living sacrifice. Jealous for what? Next, our worship. Do you see how often God said, hey, when you go into the promise, don't worship these other gods. Worship me and me alone. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 11. He said that all things exist for Jesus. All things, Paul said, Romans 11, all things exist for him. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter one, that all things have been made by Jesus and for Jesus. Did you know that you were designed to worship Jesus. That's how you were designed to do this life is to worship him. And so that's why anytime we're living our lives in pursuit of anything else other than Jesus, we find them unsatisfactory, unfulfilling, and oftentimes leave us with pain and regret because you were actually designed. You were created. You're on this planet to worship God. That's why you're here. That's why you exist to worship God, all things were made by him and for him. And so God says, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of your, of your worship. Next, God says, I'm jealous for the glory. I'm jealous for the glory, the, the credit, the, the recognition. In Isaiah chapter 42 and 48, God says this, I will not give my glory to another. I will not share my glory with anyone or anything else. All the glory, the credit, the honor, the recognition belongs to me. In fact, when 
God calls this guy named Gideon as a judge, as a ruler, a leader over Israel and leads them. Gideon leads Israel into battle against this army called the Midianites. God says this, Hey, you're going to go to to battle with the, with the Midianites, but, but you've got too many soldiers. You know, Gideon had to be like, what? Too many. You mean too few? Like, give me some more soldiers. I'll take more, please. And God says, no, you got too many. And God whittles Gideon's army down to 300 soldiers to go against this vast army of the Midianites who are trained and who have all these great weapons. And God says, you're going to go into battle with 300. And not only that, you're going to go into battle with instruments and pots and pans. And Gideon's like, no way, God, no way. But he follows God. He goes to battle with 300. And Israel defeats the Midianites because God comes down and and helps Israel, helps Gideon defeat the Midianites. And God tells Gideon why. Because if it's us, we're thinking, God, why are you doing this? What, what's the point of this? What, what are you trying to accomplish by doing this, by just sending us to this supposed slaughter? And God says, I'm doing this because otherwise Israel will think that they won the battle and they will say, we did this for ourselves. And God says, I'm not okay with that. I don't share my glory with another. God is jealous. He's jealous about his relationship with you. And maybe to help us understand this concept a a little bit better, another word for jealousy is intimacy. Uh, Another word for jealousy is intimacy, because in case at this point you're like totally offended by God, that God is jealous for your life and your worship and your heart and the glory and all these kinds of things. And you're like, who, who, what? What, what, what is this? Let, let, let me help you understand this. Another word for jealousy is intimacy. Now, when I was in middle school, I met my wife. Some of you guys know this in seventh grade uh, here in Lubbock, we met in an English class and uh, became great friends. And we dated in ninth grade, but it didn't last very long because I never talked to her. Uh, I was really shy. And so she had her friend break up with me and um, I, I knew it was her. She acted like it was my, or now my wife, but she wasn't my wife then, that's weird. But she acted like she was Darby. She broke up with me over the phone. And uh, so then in high school, um, we're liking each other, but it's always at the wrong timing. Like I, I like her and she's dating someone or she likes me and, and, and I'm dating someone. But here's the thing, no matter who I dated, I always had a thing for Darby, always. In fact, at one point, my mom said, she asked me, she said, Clayton, if Darby were to call you right now and say, hey, I want to date, what would you do? I'd say, oh, I'd break up with that girl and go out with Darby. <laughs> she was like, what? I was like, yeah. She's like, well, then why are you dating that girl? Good question. You know, fair. That's fair. But, but we are, we're, we're, we're dating. She's like, I don't get that. I was like, you know, I really don't either, but that's just what this is what's going on right now. So, so we always liked each other, but it was always the, the, the wrong timing. And here's the thing. Here's what's funny. From the time I was in like seventh grade, my girlfriends, my ex-girlfriends would always warn the next girlfriend about Darby and they would tell them, watch out for Darby. They're great friends. They talk all the time. They always flirt. They're always, they hang out, watch out for Darby. I mean, my stinking ex-girlfriends would tell the new one about my junk, about my baggage. Can you imagine that? None of you, I know none of you would ever do that, but, but these girls did that to me. And so at one point, I'm dating this girl in high school. She's been warned. And so she comes over to my house one day and I'm on the phone. She says, um, who are you talking to? Uh, no one. And, you know, hang up the phone real quick. No, nobody. And she says, no, no, who, who, who are you talking to? I'm like, nobody, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a friend. And um, so in these days, you could pick up a phone. It sounds like really old, like back in the olden days or something. But in these days, you could pick up the phone and you could hit on the phone star 69 and it would immediately call back the person you were just talking to. So 
My girlfriend picks up the phone, hits star 69. It calls the person back. She says, who is this? Darby says, this is Darby. She goes, don't you ever talk to my boyfriend again or call him or anything like that. And Darby laughs and says, whatever. Yeah, right. And so they hang up the phone. You see, no matter who I dated, I was always thinking about a relationship with Darby. I always liked her, that she always had this, this part of my heart. And that was never okay with the girls that I dated. I mean, imagine this girls, imagine this. Some dude is like, Hey, you know, I really want to date. Like, I really want to go out. Maybe one day, like a guy's telling you, Hey, you know, I really, I, I want to get married. Like that would be awesome. Uh, let's do that. But I love you, babe. I love you. Like, I really love you, but there's this other girl I want to keep sleeping with. Is that okay? Like, is that going to be all right? Are we good? It's not good. Okay. That's not going to go well for you guys. Don't, don't even, don't even try it. Okay. It's not going to go well for you because in a relationship between a man and a woman, it's designed, God designed it. He created it to be intimate. And the nature, watch this, of intimacy is exclusivity. You got to catch this. To understand El Kanah, the jealous God, you've got to understand that the nature of intimacy is exclusivity. You see, the reason I could marry my wife, Darby, college students have asked me this for years. How did you know? How did you know she was the one? Here's how I know. You want to you know how I knew Darby was the one for me? It was because I knew I could marry her and never think about anyone else for the rest of my life. I knew it. I knew I could marry her and not ever wonder about someone else. You see, everyone else I had ever dated, I always was thinking about someone else, right? I always had someone else in my heart, someone else on my mind. I always had someone else. There was always the thought, always the wonder, always the, the question. But when I started dating Darby, my freshman year at Tech, I knew this is the person I can marry because I don't care about anybody else. I don't want anybody else. I'm not wondering about it. There's no question in my mind about anyone else. If I'm going to be with her for the rest of my life, I'm not wondering about anyone else. And I knew she was the one for me. Because the nature of intimacy is exclusivity. One of the verses that we've had for our relationship, for our marriage over the last now about 18 years, 16 years of marriage, year of dating, year of engagement. But one of our verses from the very beginning is in Song of Solomon chapter eight. And it says this, that love is as strong as death. It's jealousy is as unyielding as the grave. Love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave itself. The nature of intimacy is exclusivity. And so now I want to persuade you prayerfully convince you that this exclusive relationship that God is jealous for you is actually your best. It's for your good and for your ultimate joy. So, so why this exclusive relationship with God, with El Kanah? Well, number one, He's worth it. He's worth it. This exclusive relationship with God is worth it. You see, because God has rescued you from your slavery to sin 
which leads to death. Eternity separated from God in a place called hell. God rescued you from slavery to sin with his mighty hand. And the same way God rescued Israel from slavery to the Egyptians and brought them and set them free and brought them to the promised land, God has rescued you, follower of Jesus. He's rescued you from your slavery to sin, which leads to death by his mighty hand. Through the hands, the nail pierced hands of his son, Jesus. He's worth it. He gave his life for you. He's the only one who's worth it. There's no boy, there's no girl, there's no relationship or job or amount of money or object that is worth your heart and your life and your worship. They will leave you feeling empty every time. They cannot and will not satisfy you because you were designed to do this life in a relationship with God through Jesus. And so he's the only one worth it. He's the only one worthy you could say, of your heart, your life, your worship. He's the only one worthy. Nothing else in this life will satisfy you, will bring you the the peace, the joy, the, the satisfaction that comes from that relationship with God, this exclusive relationship with God through Jesus. It's what you were designed for. And so Jesus alone is worthy of this. No one else and no thing else is worthy. He alone is worthy. And then number two, he's the source of your joy. God, like this exclusive relationship with God, is the source of joy in this life. There is no other source. This exclusive relationship with God is the source of your joy in this life. Jonathan Edwards, a famous preacher in the 1700s, said this about this idea, this concept. Here's what he said. He said, God, in seeking his glory, remember what we just said? God is jealous for the glory, for for, for, for your worship. And God, in seeking his glory, seeks the good of his creatures. Because the emanation of his glory implies the happiness of his creatures. And in communicating his fullness for them, he does it for himself. Because their good, which he seeks, is in union and communion with himself. God is their good. Their excellency and happiness is nothing but the emanation and expression of God's glory. God, watch this, in seeking their glory, that's me and you, and happiness, seeks himself. And in seeking himself, he seeks their glory and happiness. Now, in case you're like, that's a little bit hard to understand. John Piper, speaking about this, a famous preacher in our day, in our country, speaking about this very topic, here's here's what he had to say. Here's how he kind of summarized this. God's passion for his own glory and his passion for my joy in him are not at odds. They are one and the same. And so God, this exclusive relationship with God is the source of your good, your joy, your happiness. It's found in him. He's the only one worthy because he's the only source. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter six, what all God said Israel was going to experience and receive in the promised land. Do do you remember? Listen to this. God said in the promised land, when, when when you go there, your houses will be richly stocked. He said, you will drink, you will draw water from a well and you you will drink and be satisfied. You will have vineyard and trees that are fruitful and you will eat your fill. In other words, you will be richly satisfied. In this exclusive relationship with me, with Elkanah, you will be richly satisfied. You will eat your fill and your thirst will be quenched in this relationship. But you won't find it anywhere else. 
There's no other person, there's no other thing, there's no other pursuit where you will be richly satisfied. That's why this exclusive relationship with God is great news for you and me. Some of you are familiar with a writer by the name of C.S. Lewis and his books called the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, one of those books is the silver chair. And in this book, there's a young girl named Jill and she's entered these woods in the land of Narnia and she's with her friend Eustace, but due to poor judgment and bad choices, she finds herself alone and separated from Eustace. She's thirsty, she's searching for water and she finds this stream to drink from, but she stops dead in her tracks. And here's why, check this out. But although the sight of water made her feel 10 times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on the side of the stream lay the lion. Now, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, when C.S. Lewis writes about the lion, this character represents Jesus Christ. So on this side of the stream, Jill encounters the lion. Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying for thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you, would you mind going away though while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come, to a, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, where there is no lion. And isn't that our, our story? Christian, non-Christian, we're always looking for another stream other than Jesus. We come to Jesus and, and we see that he's a devouring fire and he's going to consume us. He's gonna eat us completely up because he demands our lives. Take up your cross and follow me. And isn't it our story, just like Jill, of constantly going to other streams, looking for other streams other than Jesus to fulfill that thirst that every one of us have. But I love what the lion says next, watch this. There is no other stream. There is no other stream. So quit looking. There's no other stream to drink from to have that thirst quenched, to have that thirst satisfied. There is no other stream. At one point, after Jesus had been feeding people and he starts to preach and the words start to get a little bit hard, they start to get a little bit difficult because Jesus is saying things like, hey, drink from me and you'll never thirst again. Eat from me and you'll never be hungry again. And people start saying, man, this is a hard teaching. We're not so sure about this. And they start turning away from Jesus because the message is getting difficult. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, are you not going to desert me too? Are you not going to follow the rest of everyone else and turn away from me too? And Peter steps up and he says, Jesus, we have nowhere else to go. Only you have the words of life. We have nowhere else to go. Later, after Jesus has been risen from the dead and ascended back to heaven, Peter's preaching. 
And he gets arrested for preaching about Jesus and he's on trial now. He's been beaten, he's been put in prison and he's having to give an account for what he's been doing and they're telling him to stop talking about Jesus. And that same Peter says, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. There's no other name because only Jesus died on the cross hands pierced to take God's wrath for your sin upon himself so that by trusting in Jesus's payment of your fine through his death on the cross, your sin could be forgiven. You could be made right with God and know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. There's no other name. No, not one. There's no other stream. There's nowhere else to go. There's no other name. Would you pray with me? God, we see in your word that you are a jealous God, a consuming fire. And you want all of us. You want our whole hearts, our minds, our, our thoughts, our worship, the glory. God, you, you, you want it all from us because the nature of intimacy, a relationship is exclusivity. And so God, help us to see tonight that this exclusive relationship with El Elkanah is for our good. It's for our best because you alone are worthy and you alone are the source of our joy. And so God, tonight, I pray you would find some hearts in this room that trust you for the very first time, that give their lives to Jesus so that their sin might be forgiven so that they could go to heaven when they die. And God, I pray that you would find some hearts in this room that know you, that follow you, that maybe they've been looking to other streams to fulfill them, but tonight they would see and know there is no other stream. There's nowhere else to go. There's no other We pray these things in the only name, the name above every name, Jesus.